one of the things that President Obama would constantly convey to us, you know, one of his most common guideposts to us was to ask, you know, what is the story we're trying to tell? You know, every speech is a story. You're taking the audience on a journey. There are characters, there's a setting, there's conflict, there's tension, there's resolution. You look, go and spend some time and look at all the elements of what makes a great story. They're all in the same elements that make a great speech. This is Brand Story, a podcast featuring in-depth conversations with leaders, marketers, and brand storytellers about their professional journey and the impact they're making on the world around them. Welcome to the Brand Story Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Gilman, and my guest today is Terrence Suplat. Terry is well-known for being one of President Barack Obama's longest-serving speechwriters. From 2009 to 2017, Terry helped conceive and draft hundreds of speeches on global security, international economics, U.S. foreign and defense policy, and human rights. As a special assistant to the president and senior director of speech writing at the National Security Council, he joined President Obama on visits to over 40 countries. During Obama's second term, Terry served as deputy director of White House speech writing in the White House speech writing office and assisted with State of the Union addresses, produced innovative content to reach new audiences via social media. And Terry is currently the founder of Global Voices, a strategic communications and speech writing consultancy. Welcome, Terry. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so excited to talk to you. Your career is just amazing. I've read that you this whole thing started with an internship. That's right. Uh, like a lot of things do in Washington, D.C., uh, I was a student at American University. I was interested in government, politics, rhetoric. I was doing a senior thesis on presidential rhetoric. Uh, my advisor called me up one day and said he heard that there was a opening in the... Um, White House speech writing office for an intern. Wow, good internship. <laughs> yeah, I went, I went down there and uh, we were assigned, I was assigned to President Clinton's foreign policy speech writers. And you know, as, an, as an intern, you're, you know, you're doing research, you're doing lunch, you're getting coffee, but once in a while they, they let me take a crack at something and uh, they'd have to completely rewrite it because I really didn't know what I was doing. I had no proper training in, in speech writing or rhetoric, um, but through them, I started to learn how to write for the year, how to write for presentation as opposed to say writing an essay, which is a different skill set. But that that's how it uh, that's how it started, that's how I got the bug in me and I just thought what an incredible job, what an incredible opportunity to be able to help President of the United States, you know, tell America's story to the world. Um, which is really what what, you know, speech writing communication is all about. In this case, the story you get to tell is the story of the United States and why why other countries, other people should want to be our ally, be our partner on things that we all care about. So, yeah, I was um, 20 years old, senior in college, and uh, I still have the copy of the president's schedule from when he went to uh, Kiev at the time, Ukraine, a newly independent and free uh, Ukraine, uh, that I helped write the remarks for his, uh, you know, you know, nothing historic, but just remarks to uh, U.S. Embassy staff. But it was the first time I got to do it and uh, just thought it'd be an incredible job to have one day. That's amazing. Is that where your interest in specialty, if you want to call it that, in foreign policy started to really become your area of focus? I think so. I have done a lot of different kinds of writing over the years, but uh, as if there's one area that's interested me the most where I've spent most of my time, it's in foreign affairs, uh, global security. And yeah, to be able to help President Clinton's speechwriters, you know, in a small way, I think sparked that for me. 
Yeah. And what was your very first speechwriting job, your first paid paid gig? It came a few years later. I, uh, I applied for and, and got a speechwriting job for the Secretary of Defense. And I always joke, I, I had uh, never served in the military. I had never worked in the Pentagon. Um, I had never, you know, worked in any capacity in the military, but I was young and they had an established office of very experienced writers. I think they were looking to bring in some kind of young, someone young that they could, that they could train up and, and teach their ways. And then within a few years, they had all moved on to other, other opportunities. And I was suddenly the, the most senior person on the, on the team and became the chief speechwriter to the secretary of defense when I was about 25 years old or so. Man, what an opportunity. And you were definitely at that age where you weren't so intimidated that you, uh, you just leapt right in and started doing it. You know, well, I was pretty intimidated. It was pretty, again, not, <laughs> never bet. having had any formal training in speech yeah. writing or communications and really whether I was an intern at the white house or as a young speechwriter at the Pentagon, really, you know, those were rough years. I, I was, I, I was being completely rewritten a lot. Um, that's what, at least that's, that was my memory. And so I had to try to understand, you know, well, what, what did I do that was wrong? And, and what was it that I needed to do better the next time? It really was learning by doing and trial by fire and, you know, eventually got there, but it was a rough, it was a rough uh, time for, for a while. I thought I might not do it. I might leave. I just thought maybe I'm not cut out for this. But people were very patient with me. I had a lot of mentors who took the time to teach me, and uh, eventually I got there. But it took it took a while. Oh, I bet. Like I think that's how good writers and great writers learn. I mean, it's so iterative, and having people teach you and show you. You know, I've I had another. I've had several writers on the podcast. I had Ken Marcus, who's a copywriter that works for all the Geico ads with the Martin Agency. Very different kind of writing, but he said similar things. Where when he started out, you know. It was everyone revising what he did and him learning. And I really think that's how great writing, great writers learn their craft in a lot of ways. Right. It's very humbling. <laughs> oh, I bet. Especially on that stage. The stakes are a little high when you're writing for the Secretary of Defense. So you spent eight years in the Obama administration. And working in the White House is notoriously demanding and and exhausting. How how did you make it through eight years with your your sanity and your health, sir. <laughs> sure. Well, I, and the first was, again, with a lot of support. Um, yeah, I bet. Uh, my wife and I have two children. They were they were pretty young at the time. Uh, she took up a lot of the, the work on the, on the home front. Uh, the people I worked with, um, you know, John Favreau, the chief speechwriter in the first term, Cody Keenan in the second term, Ben Rhodes, who's the chief foreign policy speechwriter throughout. Um you know, they, I had made it clear, you know, I, I loved what I did. I, I absolutely loved it. I loved working there. I loved writing. The, the, the adrenaline rush never stopped, even at the end. You know, year six, seven, eight, we retired. But you know, I loved the experience of trying to help craft these these moments uh, for the president to, to connect with the audiences, both in the room and around the world. Uh, the trips we took were, uh, you know, just huge adrenaline rush. And I love doing it. So um, I never got tired of it. It was hard. It was frustrating at times. But um, between, you know, my wife at home and incredible colleagues at, at work, I was, I, I was able to do it. And, um, you know, one, one thing I did do that, that I think because I was the only speechwriter at the time who had children, had small children, you know, I, I tried whenever I could to 
leave at a reasonable hour. And it's pretty common in the White House to stay there till, you know, there's there's always more to do, seven, eight, nine, ten o'clock on a regular basis. And I knew that if that were my life, I, I wouldn't be able to do it for very long. I wanted to do it as long as I could. I wanted to do it the whole time. And so 6.30, 7 o'clock, most nights, you know, barring some sort of national, you know, security crisis, I would try really hard to, 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 to go home and have dinner with my family and help put my kids to bed and then get back online and work, work late into the night. But I had the support of colleagues who would allow me to do that. Um, it didn't happen all the time. Uh, there were a lot of things that came up. It just wasn't possible. But I was able to do it more often than not. And that made a huge difference for, for, for me and my family. And I, I couldn't have done it as long as I did it if I hadn't had some some sort of arrangement like that and um, tried hard to make it work. That's amazing to hear. I'm really glad that that was the situation you were in because I, you know, knowing enough about that world uh, and, you know, being in D.C. and knowing other uh, people who've worked in various administrations, the, the you know, the workload's very intense. Not every not everyone can do it. I don't think that's as easy to do in the communications and the press shop. But, you know, with speech writing, if, if, if I was going to have to work four or five hours, it's, it's me at a, you know, it's, it's, it's you at a computer. So whether I did that from, you know, seven to, to you know, seven to midnight or eight to two, you know, 10 to two in the morning, uh, you know, never missed a deadline, always got the work done. So I think so long as you ho- hold up your end of the bargain, you know, I tried really hard to make it work and I was able to stay until the, the you know, the end. That's great. So I've, I've heard that, uh, Great speechwriters are basically translators of really complex ideas. Do you think that's true? I do. I think I think we tried translators and simplifiers. Maybe that's the same thing. I was, uh, you know, we spend a lot of time reading the briefing materials that go to a principal like the president or the secretary of defense. You know, we sit in on the meetings where policies are being developed and and formalized in writing, uh, but none of that is necessarily written for a general audience and. And not being, um, I think, one of the attributes that can make a speechwriter good at what they do is to to not be a subject matter expert sometimes. Because, you know, if we wanted to explain it to a general audience, I first had to explain it to myself. I had to understand it. And again, not being, you know, I, you know, I'm not a Russia expert. I'm not a U- Europe expert. But I would write this president's speeches on Europe and Russia. So what I had to do was listen to the experts and then try to distill it and make it more accessible for, for me, first for myself and, and then for a general audience. And so, um, yeah, I think that's a great, I think that's generally how I thought about it is that we're going to simplify this. Um, you know, speeches are not policy papers. They're not legal documents. They're not legal briefs. They're not essays. They're not books. They are the script that a leader uses to speak to and communicate with and connect with an audience. And that's a whole different series of skill sets. It's a little like, you know, we, we're in marketing and brand and we're always talking about being audience centric and thinking about their point of view and what they'll understand, not necessarily what someone wants to put in front of them. And so I think it, there's a lot of storytelling techniques. Did you find when you're writing speeches and, and you wrote some amazing ones. Um, do you consciously think of storytelling techniques or story structure? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that President Obama would constantly convey to us 
especially when we had these bigger speeches coming up and have to go up to the Oval Office and figure out what it is you wanted to say. You know, one of his most common, you know, guideposts to us was to ask, you know, what is the story we're trying to tell? You know, every speech is a story. You're taking the audience on a journey. There are characters, there's a setting, there's conflict, there's tension, there's resolution, hopefully of some kind, there's challenge. Uh, you look, go and spend some time and look at all the elements of what makes a great story. They're all in the same elements that make a great speech. And so you have to think about it before you, you know, before you sit down and write, what, what is, what is the story I'm trying to tell? Uh, where do I, where do I start? What is the, you know, what's the journey I'm going to take the audience on? Where are we going to end up? Um, how do we get there? How do you keep the reader, you know, of a book, the listener of a speech engaged throughout? Um, so absolutely. And this speech is not only a story, but then of, of course the the power of storytelling within speeches. You know, some of the most memorable moments that I think in President Obama's uh, rhetoric is when he told stories of ordinary Americans, people who who exemplified the the issue, the story, the struggle that we we're trying to serve. You know, a veteran. Um, th- th- this is how we connect with each other as human beings. You know, they've done studies are our, our oxytocin levels shoot up when we start hearing a story, and it activates all sorts of emotions of empathy and charity and compassion. And so um, as a speechwriter, you're always, it's, it's the stories. It's, it's, it's not the statistics. You're, you know, again, this is not a research paper. It's not a policy paper. If you're loading it up with lots of statistics, um, again, for a general audience, you're really not you're probably going to achieve what you want. But if you root it, think of, again, both the speech itself as a story and then storytelling within it, and there's so many different ways to do that. And it's about emotion, you know. It's about an, it's about reaching the emotional life of the audience, whether that's through a speech or any kind of story. It does help when you have a great orator too. And you know, so you were writing for what I think is probably the best orator we've had as a president. He's a natural storyteller and a gifted speaker. So did that make your job harder or easier at times? Always made it harder. It always <laughs> so I'm going to mess this up, but you know, at one point early in his presidency or during the first campaign, he said something to the effect of, you know, I'm a better strategist than my strategists. I'm a better, uh, you know, communicator than my communications folks, and I'm a better speechwriter than my speechwriters. You know, and it hurt a little bit, but it also was true. And you know, he, you know, he wrote the, the speech that catapulted him to, you know, national prominence was his speech of the 2004 Democratic Convention in Boston. He wrote that himself. He wrote um, some, you know, so he was a speechwriter before he ever had speechwriters. And so, you know, as a speechwriter, one of the things you're trying to do is, you know, of course, not write it the way you think it should be said. You're writing it for someone else. And particularly with the president, you're trying to write as best you can what what they would write if they only had the time to do it themselves. And so that's what I was always asking myself is, oh, if, if he did have a few hours and could write this himself, what would he write? That's, that's what I should be trying to do. The challenge was, is that he was a better speechwriter than his speechwriters. And so there were times, some pretty dark moments when I just, I, I hit a wall, I had writer's block, I was frustrated, or I just had that, you know, insecurity of, you know, you're writing, you're, no matter what you do, it's not going to be as good as what he could do. 
Uh, and at times that became crippling and I, and I had some, some real, you know, dark experiences, but, um, yeah, no, it generally made it, it generally made it harder. <laughs> I bet. Yeah. I mean, that's a really difficult audience and, uh, mm -hmm. I'm sure it was a very collaborative process in ways, you know, where you would write something and it would get changed by him or you would go back and forth as well. But yeah, that's a, it's a high bar trying to, to write for someone that's already a gifted communicator. Yeah. And again, you know, he was a teacher in that and, and he, you know, when he did do significant structural changes, which as a writer, I always found the most challenging, you know, it, a line edit is easy. You know, it, it's a different word, a different sentence, cross out, move this here. But when someone basically, you know, you've written it in a way that makes sense to you. Uh, you've structured it in a way, A, you know, A leads to B leads to C. You've put it in a certain order. Uh, certain uh, examples are used to illustrate certain points. And then when someone comes back to you and said, you know, I, I, I see this differently. I see this structure different. I see this example that you've used is actually, to me, more illustrative of a different point. And so I would, you know, so when someone kind of deconstructs the speech and asks you to reassemble it, as he often did, um, it was one of the most challenging parts of speech writing that I ever had. Because again, what you're, you've, you've kind of, you've approached the whole thing a certain way. They're asking you to step back, look at it with a clean slate, a blank page and reassemble it in a different way. Um, that requires sort of a different series of mental steps. Um, and that, that was hard, but, um, again, you know, each speak, every speaker is going to have, you know, there's a hundred different ways to write every speech and every speaker comes at it differently. And so most of the time I think we, you know, we delivered sometimes he had a different take and uh, we had to in under very, <laughs> very tight timelines, uh, you know, with, you know, the crowd in the theater, the music's going, they're cheering, he's waiting to go out and you're moving paragraphs around. Uh, there's a few things more, stressful than that. That'll get your adrenaline going, won't it? Sure did. So you've worked on so many important speeches. What's, is there any one speech that you're the most proud of? I know that's a crazy, it's like asking you to pick children, but <laughs> is there, is there anyone that just pops out to you as one of your favorites? There is, you know, uh, at, at the end of the administration, someone asked all of us to pick a speech that we were most sort of, uh, proud of or connected to. And you can go online and Google, you know, Obama speechwriters pick their favorite speeches. And what's interesting is almost all of them are speeches that I think most people have never heard of. One or two are ones you've heard of. They're the big ones. But for the most part, the speeches that connect with all of us are ones that where we had a, a real personal connection to in some way. And for me, that was, you know, I grew up in, I was born in Boston. I grew up in Massachusetts. And so um, when the Boston Marathon was bombed and people were killed, uh, I was able to help with the president's remarks at the memorial uh, for that, um, which became a real tribute to the city and to the spirit of the city and the people and, and sort of the right way to respond to fear and terror. Uh, and so to be able to work on that meant a great deal to me because, you know, in that case, I was sort of trying to help my own home state and hometowns get through a really difficult, difficult moment. And so to be able to play a part in that and help a group of people that I care, you know, just in the country get through a really awful moment meant a lot to me just on a personal level. I bet. Yeah. That was a beautiful speech. I watched that and 
found it to be an incredible speech. I was a, a huge fan and still am of of the speeches that President Obama gave because he was such a gifted speaker. And how important do you think having someone that's a really talented orator um, in office is to American leadership? I mean, it's important. I mean, we've seen we've seen all sorts of examples of it. Um, you know, any I would say going out and reading a speech isn't that hard. I mean, we we all see it. We politicians, CEOs, leaders of NGOs, people in our community. And you, we all know the difference between someone who's reading something and someone who's really inhabiting it and, and lifting it up. And so I think, you know, we always tried, I always tried to give my A plus work every single time. I, and I never wanted him to come back and say, you know, did you, did you, did you not try? I wanted him to know I put our heart and soul to every single draft. And yet, no matter what we did, he could still some find a way to, to lift it up higher, whether through his delivery or an ad lib. And yeah, uh, or, you know, oratory, actually delivering a speech is a whole different skill set than writing it or even just reading it. And, you know, the, you know, the effective use of a pause to let an idea sink in or to let the crowd react to something or to let them start to chuckle or start to cheer or start to process what you've said. And these are all things that, you know, you know, how to raise your voice at the end of a sentence, how to, how to deliver something with a rhythm. Um, sometimes it's not always obvious from, from the written word on a page, what those are, or, you know, the line you need to hit, you know, with a lot of clients I work with, I, I underline things or I put ellipses to force them to breathe, you know, um, we never had to do that with him. You know, he was just such a gifted orator and he, and so he was always able to, to lift it up and take it to a, to a higher place. Um, and that's a, that's a learned skill. I mean, he, a, a student once wrote to him and asked him the key, you know, the secrets of giving a great speech. And he wrote back. And one of the things he wrote back was practice. And that, you know, he said, I wasn't very good the first 50 times I did it. You know, uh, we only remember you know, the first speech that most of us ever saw Barack Obama was, was 2004 Boston. Um, but by then he had, you know, he had been at it for a while. We just hadn't seen it. Um, but yeah, you got to practice. You have to, you have to get better at it. And, uh, you know, we all know it. We know it when we hear it. We know the difference between someone. And as a, as a speechwriter, again, that's one of the things you strive for is, you know, sometimes someone would come to me and say, oh, I, you know, I, I'm, sorry, I know you really worked hard on that. And, you know, he had lived a lot. I could tell he had lived a lot of it because he wasn't reading it. And I mean, th th that actually was a compliment because he hadn't had lived it at all. But the person in the audience felt like he had left the script because they couldn't tell the difference between the prepared script and his natural voice. I mean, that's what you want. You want the script to be as close to their natural voice and rhythms and patterns as possible. Sometimes with other leaders you've heard, you can absolutely tell the difference between when they're speaking and when they're reading, which is, I think, you know, kind of an indictment on the both the speaker and the, the speech writing. Yeah, you have to you have to really be able to write for someone's performance style and their rhythms and their voice, and you, you know, you and the whole speech writing team, you know, uh, script. were just amazing. Yeah, it is a script, and to have a great performer makes it a lot easier. Mm -hmm. So, what do you think? business leaders, I know you work with a lot of companies and internationally and nationally now, what do you think business leaders who speak to larger groups of employees 
you know, and investors have to learn from professional speech writers because not all of them, you know, get someone like you to help them. What is it? What advice would you give? You know, when I'm working with clients sometimes or doing workshops with people who write for CEOs, you know, one of the things I hear is my CEOs is so boring. We go to boring conferences and frankly, the product we make isn't that exciting. And I just, I don't see the opportunity for something that connects emotionally with an audience or whether they're investors or clients or employees. And that always sort of breaks my heart because I feel like if, you know, obviously if you, if you think you're boring, if you think your boss is boring, I mean, obviously there's not going to be an opportunity to really connect on an emotional level. But I think that, I think people are missing opportunities to think beyond bigger and beyond their product and their company. I mean, everything that it, every company, every, pretty much every company, you're, you're doing something to help make somebody's life better, I hope, if you're, if you're working at a good company. And if you think a little bit more broadly about what you do and the impact you have on people's daily life, if you're making a product, you know, some, some companies are very good at this. They understand the emotional connection they have. But, you know, I, I tell people I, I've worked with a company that work, that is that an IT company. That I've worked with them for years. I still don't quite know how the software works, but they've always recognized and their CEO has always recognized that they're not just in the business of software. They're in, the, in a larger business. They're about something bigger. And it's about making companies and organizations uh, more transparent and open and having relationships with their customers or their volunteers. Um, and that, that's how they speak about their product. And that's why people want to go work for them. That's why they, they get to turn people away because there's something bigger than just the product. And so I think sitting down, going through that thought process and, and thinking, you know, can, can we tell, we, we talked about story, can we tell a bigger, better story about who we are, what we're doing, the impact we're having, and and how it improves people's lives? Um, you know, S S Steve Jobs talking about Apple once said, you know, look, look at a Nike commercial, right? Like, never are they ever telling you about how great their sneakers are, or are they trying to connect with you on an emotional level uh, about a lifestyle and a choice? And so I think I think more companies could do that. Not, not, you know, it's harder for some than others. But I think everybody, everybody has a why, you know, and I think we help companies with that too, is like, if you feel like what you do is boring, it's probably not. And it's, it's probably needed. And there's a reason that you're doing it. There's a reason the company started. I, I've always found that everyone has a story to tell. And if you just dig a little deeper. Yeah. I can ask you, why did you start this company? Tell me, go back to the beginning. Why did you do this? Why did you do something else? And and tell me that story again. And remember, uh, companies drift from that or as they get bigger, as they move into other areas. But having an origin story, remembering what that is, why you did it, um, that's what that's what animates people. So I, I, I feel, yeah, I think I feel, and I, I'm sure there are a lot of CEOs out there who would love to give a better speech. You know, uh, they'd love to be you know, not just talking about the widget and the product that they make and having a, a bigger purpose. I think a lot of people think, a lot of CEOs and a lot of leaders think they need to talk about the what all the time. 
Like, let's just talk about the what and the details and the benefits. And really what human beings want to hear about is the why and the emotion and the, the bigger, wider story than the how you're helping. That's what, it's like what you said earlier about that's how human beings connect and learn. We all connect and learn through story. So I think, you know, that's something that I, that's one of the reasons I have this podcast. I love people's stories. So I just can't get enough. I've been diving deep into stories since I was a kid and directing plays in my front yard. So this is a, this is really fun talking to you today. So do you think, uh, have you given any thought or think about the, how the shorter attention spans and sort of the TikTokification of media, it, does that make speech writing more difficult today to hold people's attention? I would think it does. I mean, uh, most people don't have the appetite for a state of the union length speech. Yeah. Right. Um, or even a half hour speech, you know, there's people talk about kind of the golden rule of 18 to 20 minutes, which is, which is probably about right. I mean, if you can't, can't say it in 18 to 20 minutes, then you probably don't know what you're saying. Um, so, and yeah, I mean, we'll see, right. We'll see another, another 10, 15, 20 years when this generation of kids who have been raised on TikTok and Instagram grow up and do they have the um, stomach for even 15 to 20 minutes? And that's going to force a lot of, re- I mean, I, it's maybe a different discussion, but I generally think that leaders, um, especially presidents, um, give too many speeches and that speeches are too long. Um, you know, we would sit, you know, again, because we understood that a speech is a story and we worked for someone who saw it that way as well. You know, we, we think, okay, this is a, this is a 20 to 30 minute story. You know, I've got to build all the pieces and make sure they fit and lead in the right order to one another. And it all holds together. And, you know, the reality is, is that very few people actually will see that whole speech and experience that as the story that we envisioned. Most people are going to see a few words on the nightly news or a headline or a quote in the newspaper or you know, maybe a minute or two on, on social media. Um, didn't change how we wrote, but I, I, I think over time I did, I just, you know, we all tried to be shorter. And I think going forward, I think leaders, especially you know, politicians and presidents are going to have to think about um, whether or not it makes sense to you know give these 30 40 minute speeches yeah or whether to try to deliver it in shorter chunks yeah and you know a president's time is precious uh why go out and do a 30 40 minute speech if the world is is not gonna consume a 30 to 40 minute speech um so i mean on one level president obama recognized this he he you know he was you know, one of the, one of the, we were flying into a, uh, Santiago, Chile to give a speech. We had worked on the speech. He, he came back to Air Force One. He said, you know, something to the effect of, you know, this is a great, you know, this is a good six page speech. It'd be a great five page speech, which was his nice way of saying, you know, basically, you know, remove about, you know, 20% of his speech. And, you know, the plane was landing and shaking and we're coming to the airport and we're just at that point, you're just, you know, the machete's out. You're just, there's no, there's no word cuts that are going to get you 20% off your speech. You're just taking out whole sections and, um, because shorter is better. I mean, he knew that we knew that, but 
you know, he really always pushes that you think you're, you think you're as short as you can be, actually you're not. Um, so over time, I, you know, he did that enough times that uh, it was infuriating at the, at the end and terrifying to have to do it. Over time, I internalized it and, you know, okay, I think I'm done. Can I really, can I get this onto one less page? Can I go back and get it even shorter? But that's a useful exercise. I often, when in the workshops that I do, we, you know, we end up ourselves, I've said, you know, we're going to do a 500, 600 word speech. You're done. Oh, no, wait, you're not done. <laughs> Take a hundred words off in the next 10 minutes, you know, and you can always do it. Um, you may not want to do it. You may have to let go of some things you like, but you can do it. And it's better that you do it when you have the time to do it right than to have the person you're working for do it, have you do it in a, in a, in a, you know, final five minutes when it's going to be it's going to be pretty ugly. Yeah. You do a lot of training like that and a lot of keynote speaking. Um, what do you think makes a great keynote? I've seen, I've seen clips from a few of your keynotes and I think you have so much, so many fascinating stories and value to bring to people. What do you really try to, to go over with people who are potential writers or people who are trying to communicate better? You know, I, I try to do what we tell everyone to do, which is, you know, give the speech that only you can give. You know, I figure we've all we've been invited because we have a unique experience. Uh, I want to I want to bring the audiences into the White House, into the room, what it's like to be in the Oval Office, what it's like to be building a speech in the West Wing, you know, what it's like to be there on Air Force One and going through those moments that I, that I just mentioned and 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 just bringing it alive with with real stories, things that actually happened to me, things that I lived through. Um, like I said, yeah, I've never taken a speech writing course in my life. I've never even read a book about speech writing. Um, uh, I'm, I'm thinking about writing one myself and I'm torn because on one level, I would be curious to see what other people have written about this topic. But on the other hand, I don't want to be sort of influenced by what others, I want to bring my experience and my stories to bear. I would read that book. You have a very unique story to tell. I'd love to hear it. Again, not not every lesson will be applicable to everybody, yeah. but I find that generally speaking, you know, what I, you know, what we did in the White House for a president is pretty transferable to whether you're writing for a CEO and an executive, the head of an NGO, whether you have to speak to your school board tomorrow night, whether you have to, you know, uh, give a toast to your parents on their anniversary or, or someone's bar mitzvah, you know, they're the basic elements of public speaking and storytelling transcend all those spaces. And I think, uh, you know, you want to hear how, um, someone like Barack Obama did it and how you might be able to do some of that yourself, I think could, I think could be very useful. So that's what I try to, that's what I try to impart in, in the speeches and the workshops that I do, which is try to, you know, bring that, bring up, bring that out, that experience alive for people. Yeah. I think that's hot, super interesting and people um, get a lot out of it because it's very rarefied air. I mean, the stakes are high, the discipline and the work and the speed that you all had to work under, I think definitely makes you elite speech writers. I mean, it's a, I think people can learn an awful lot. So if you ever write that book, I'm there. I'll be, I'll get the first copy. <laughs> there you go. It's, it's easy to say I'll write a book. Yeah, I know. It's super hard to do, isn't it? See if I can do it and maintain my sanity. So you traveled to over 40 countries with the president. That is a lot of travel. And there's something that, that was always in the media and I heard said that, you know, as President Obama would speak internationally, he would like apologize for America. And that I couldn't 
disagree with that more. But I'd love to hear your perspective on that because he would, I found that his style, he would always be transparent and empathic about his real experiences in America. And, you know, he's a minority in America, so his experiences are going to be very real indeed. So what do you, I, I'm sure you've heard that a million times. So first of all, I think it's important to remember who was, who was saying that, who was making the criticism. And they were, they were always political opponents uh, on the other side that were trying to score political points. Okay. So uh, that, you know, that number one, number two. So like check the record. I tell people like, you know, go online, uh, search, search for it, find, find where he got up in front of a foreign audience and said, I want to apologize for what the United States did. The only thing that they can point to are times when he got up and spoke truthfully about our experience and our journey as a country, as a multiracial, multiethnic, multireligious society that at its founding was not a full democracy. And that has, through many, many stages, tried to broaden the you know, promise of the United States to people. So when he would talk about slavery, he was not apologizing for the United States. He was standing up and sharing our experience as a nation that confronts its imperfections, confronts its contradictions, and tries to deal with them. And he was doing that for a very, very specific reason. He was doing that often in countries who have similar issues that maybe they're not confronting themselves, or maybe people are being thrown in jail for discussing them, or press are being stifled because they write about them, or people are being arrested because they march for them. And so what he was trying to show was show, not tell, that this is how strong, good countries behave. This is how you can become a stronger, more prosperous country, by dealing with things that are hard and difficult. And so he was using the experience of the United States um, as, an, as an example for others to, to learn from. Yeah, and I, I always thought, like, I've, I've listened to a lot of those speeches and read about this, and the, you know, having a little bit of vulnerability and telling the truth to an audience and just sharing the real experience isn't weakness. It is, it's actually strength and being a bully is weakness. So I always respected that a great deal. You know, we have foreign leaders come and give speeches to joint uh, sessions of Congress. Can you imagine if a foreign leader stood up there and lectured the United States on what it ought to do regarding race relations or you know, Americans would, you know, across the political spectrum, would, would, you know, uh, sort of be repulsed by that. Well, guess what? You know, that's how it works everywhere around the world. And um, we have had examples of American presidents, you know, wagging the finger in foreign countries. And you know, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And so Barack Obama was very deliberately um, trying, you know, to connect with these audiences Acknowledging that that there is no there is no perfect nation on the planet, uh, we are very proud of our history in many ways, and we are also proud of how we've tried to overcome difficulties. And that was the context in which he shared all those stories. And uh, again, as someone who made those trips, 
sat in the room, sat in the audience. I watched how foreign audiences responded to that. You know, the people lobbying these criticisms <laughs> weren't there, didn't see it. It worked. And it works for the same reason why when you're having a discussion with a family member, a neighbor, someone in your community, a business partner who you don't, you know, um, you know, you've got to have a little class. You've got to acknowledge that, 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 that you're not perfect and you can learn. And uh, that builds trust. It builds credibility. And it creates a space where you can do business together and, and work together. And that's really what all these trips were always about. We didn't he didn't make presidents don't make these trips to travel because they like to travel. Usually they love nothing more than go home and sleep in their own bed. They're there to do business, to do work, to get trade deals done, to, to forge agreements on security. And this was all part of that building trust and credibility, not only with leaders, but with, with the people in those countries. And I think trying to build rapport that way by talking about your strengths and your experience and maybe your weaknesses as a nation or a person when you're trying to like connect with an audience is brilliant. I mean, that's really the best way to go about it. And I think it's the opposite of sort of a us versus them mentality. That's kind of gets superimposed on, on messages like that, you know, like, Oh, well you should always be strong at all points. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Right. That's right. You know, I think one of the things that I've noticed, of course, and you know, we won't dive deep into this, but since your all's time in the White House, certainly things have been interesting. And uh, I think public discourse has gotten even more polarized and, you know, conflict's been a little weaponized. Do you have any ideas or any thoughts on how we get back to a place where we're listening to each other a little bit better? I think, you know, one of the things that everybody who has a platform, whether they're a politician, a business leader, someone in social media, um, you know, I think one thing we can, you know, there's there's a lot to unpack here. But I think one thing, one easy thing that we could all do is to stop, um, to not be so quick to question other people's motives. Um, number one, because um, most of us don't know what the true motives of another person are. We don't know what's in their heart. We don't know what's in their head. We know what they say. And oftentimes that can be a window into their heart or their, or their, their, their mind. But we really don't know um, um, what they are thinking. And when we all know from our own lives, you know, when someone questions your motives, that, that immediately creates distance and it makes uh, it harder to have a rational, calm discussion. And so I think that's one. Uh, but, you know, it's hard. We're, we're in an environment where... You know, the vast majority, you know, to, to put it in the political realm, we're in a moment when, according to surveys, the vast majority of Democrats think that uh, the vast majority of Republicans are racists and the vast majority of Republicans think the vast majority of Democrats are, you know, socialists bent on destroying America. Um, if that's the way that people are approaching dialogue and communication, um, there's not a whole lot to, there's not a whole lot of um, work to be done there other than to try to destroy and beat down, frankly, your fellow American. Um, so I think one of the things that's, I, you know, I, disturbs me, but that there's, there's, the center is shrinking, um, you know, there have, and I don't, and I don't mean the political center because I happen to be someone who's, who I see myself on the left, but I, 
every, most people, it seems, most leaders are speaking only to their base and because they think the way to win is to just turn out more people who already agree with you. And so there's, there's, there just doesn't seem to be as much effort anymore to persuade, to try to reach out, to try to understand where someone else might be coming from, uh, to try to reach them, connect with them and, and persuade them and to try to bring them over. Um, that it, it, we can't just be two, um, two different ideological camps uh, that that think the other is the enemy. I mean, that's we, you know, this, this the country won't won't be able to survive that way. So I think from a, from a rhetorical standpoint, I wish uh, I wish there was more effort for people to uh, not you know demonize the other side so quickly, and to at least try to acknowledge that 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 there are you know I'm not necessarily talking about the leaders here but just that there are fellow citizens who are um are people of good faith and are trying and that we you know passionately disagree on some a lot of things really important things but that there that our perhaps our rhetoric can be uh, a bit more respectful um you know, it's easy to say, but, and it's, and, you know, I'm sure I'm saying this and someone's watching and saying, well, well, here's 10 things Barack Obama said that really upset me and, and certainly was not inclusive. Uh, he did try, uh, every, I think every leader who is, has a microphone probably has said things they wish, you know, that they would not say again. But, um, yeah, I mean, there's just, there's too few people trying to do that and the people who throw the bombs get all the attention there's a lot of reasons for that but um, you know the it's a cycle where the rhetoric feeds the division the division feeds the rhetoric and uh, but at some point someone has to stand up and say that you know I just I'm I'm gonna fight like hell on the issues but I'm, I'm not going to demonize you yeah I'm I'm hoping somehow the tide on that changes because you're right the it's just a, a cycle. And it's a self-fulfilling prophecy because you you start talking in an echo chamber to your own audience and you're not truly listening and you're not truly trying to build any kind of consensus. So yeah, I'm hoping that's something in the in the national rhetoric that'll change. And uh, so thank you for speaking to that. I think that was super interesting. Um, so what's next for you and Global Voices? What are you working on now? And besides your book that I'll expect the first copy of, what are you... Uh, <laughs> What's going on with you? How to get started on that? Yeah, I know. Now you have one person really anxiously waiting. So I, I mean, I do for clients what the same thing I did for President Obama, which is you know I try to make sure that I'm helping them tell the best story they can. Again, whether they're a CEO and the best story they can tell about their their company, an NGO, the best story they can tell about why people ought to support them, or or even individuals, uh, advocates, you know why you know helping them find figure out what their voice is what their story is how they can contribute in a, a unique way to to a debate or a discussion and i everything we've talked about today the the process the the philosophy it's what i what i bring to my work and you know um i work out of, i work out of a home office and i get to so it's very different than uh, i have windows which is very different than working in the basement of the west wing so uh, life is life is good and and yeah, I'm, uh, I've started. I've started working on a book that I try to distill a lot of these lessons into um, uh, a way that's accessible for people, and that the way so people can apply them in their own lives, whether they're in business or philanthropy or just in their in their community. Because I think I think there are some basic lessons that um, 
that you know they work whether you're the president of the United States or whether you're you're running for school board. Yeah, well, I think that, that's amazing, and I'm so glad we connected because I'm having such a great time talking to you. So I've got a couple of real quick questions to ask you before we wrap up. And uh, so let me ask you this: If you hadn't been a speechwriter, what do you think you would have done? Well, I, you know, like a lot of young people who come to Washington, I, I thought I was going to be a lawyer for a while. I, you know, took the LSAT, right? <laughs> didn't do so well on it. <laughs> so that, that my first uh, my first stab at being a lawyer didn't. But you know, I had visions of you know arguing cases in front of the Supreme Court, which I guess would have been another form of uh, speech writing and, and speech giving. But um, the idea of uh, using your words and your argument to to, to bring about change. Uh, so I don't know if I would have been a very good one, but uh, this, this worked out. Well, it worked out pretty well. So what's a piece of advice that you've been given that really stuck with you? I think, you know, the, what we've talked about, which is um, so many of us, you know, the way we're educated, you know, we're taught to write essays a certain way with evidence and arguments and data and statistics. And that's how you, that's how you make a point. Um, when it comes to speech writing and communicating and a human being standing in front of other human beings and trying to connect with them on some level, it's not the statistics, it's the story. It's always the story. It's the story you're telling and the stories you tell in the speech. Um, and, you know, I've always known that. Um, I know it based on a lot of the research that I've done for this book. I, I know it even more now. And, and I've, I've started to learn the, the science behind persuasion, the, the neuroscience, the psychology, the reasons. I wish I knew more of that at the beginning of my career. I think I would have sometimes written uh, speeches differently. Um, you know, when someone from the policy shop comes and says, hey, we really want this fact in there because we really think this is an important statistic. You know, we put it in. Um, and I thought there were times, oh, maybe that'll convince somebody of something. Maybe that'll change somebody's mind. We know now from all sorts of studies that, you know, statistics and numbers rarely change someone's mind. They rarely motivate someone. Um, they either agree with it and so you embrace it or, you know, confirmation bias, you don't want to believe it, so you ignore it. Um, whereas if you really want to move somebody, you have to, you know, understand their, you know, value system, their moral foundation, their moral framework, how to how to kind of root your arguments uh, where they are uh, with storytelling, with framing. Um, that, that was something that I've learned, a piece of advice that I've sort of wish I appreciated more when I was starting. That's great. So I have like two final questions for you. Do you have any uh, must read or must listen, um, any a book, podcast, something that you just would love if people read? No, <laughs> I, <laughs> that's my I, favorite answer I've ever gotten. I, I actually, <laughs> yeah, you know, um, like I said, I've, I've never, I've never read a speech writing book, so I can't recommend one yet. Um, the, the, what I would always do is, you know, I, again, speeches are meant to be, they're not meant to be read. They're not meant to be, you know, read alone. They're meant to be heard. They're meant to be experienced. And so, now, I always tell people, like, you know, if you have a favorite speech or a favorite speaker or, you know, go online, you know, and just listen. I, I, when I was first starting out as a speechwriter for Barack Obama, you know, I had to learn his voice. I had to learn his patterns and his cadence and his rhythms. And I would find a speech, play it, put my headphones on and turn the screen off so I wouldn't get distracted by all the hand gestures and the audience of this. And I would just listen for 
all those things, the, the tone of his voice, where he paused, where he breathed. Um, and so, yeah, that speeches are meant to be heard. And so, you know, I would say more than anything, you know, if you like Kennedy, go listen to some Kennedy speeches. Don't watch them. Turn the screen off. If you like Reagan, go listen to some of his speeches. Um, that's how, you know, listen to him the way they were meant to be experienced. Um, and it'll make you a better, you know, it'll make you a better writer. It'll make you give a better speaker if you are a speaker. Um, that's what I tell people. That's great advice. I'm so glad I asked you that. And it's I, more I, fun, I think. Yeah, it is. It's, uh, anytime you're doing something, it's always great to just listen to a ton of it and and just absorb and find the rhythms. So last question. This has been a blast talking to you today. Um, if you could give your younger self any advice, what would it be? Uh, remember, this is going to be hard. Uh, I think earlier I, I talked about how there were some moments when I was either an intern or in my first speech writing job at the Pentagon in my early 20s where I got really close to quitting or wanting to quit. And um, it's a different form of writing. Um, it's very unique, and it's unique to the person you're writing for. Um, I've been lucky. I, I, the, for the most part, the people I've worked for, I think it's it's worked. It's We've clicked. Uh, but I've seen other speech writers who, you know, they've had a wonderful experience with one speaker. They got each other. They got the voice. They had the mind meld. And then they went to work for someone else, and they didn't have that. It was a very frustrating experience. So um, if you enjoy it, if you love it, if you get a rush out of it, if you get that adrenaline, if you like, you know, as I do, going to the speech, seeing the audience react, seeing the speaker you know, draw energy from the audience and vice versa and watch that dynamic. Um, if you enjoy that and cr helping create those experiences, stick with it. And, you know, there will be dark moments, but um, if, you, if you're enjoying it, it's probably because you're good at it on some level. And, um, yeah, I would say that as a uh, tell myself, and I'm glad I didn't give up. I'm glad I didn't quit. Yeah, me too. Well, it's been so great talking to someone who's such an incredibly accomplished storyteller. And uh, I think uh, a lot of the speeches you worked on and that you wrote are absolutely amazing. So thank you. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Want to hear more inspiring stories? Subscribe on your preferred podcast app so you don't miss an episode. And if you like what we're doing, please rate, review, and share. It's the best way to support us. Thank you for listening to Brand Story. Thank you.